So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And uh, this is, 1 Corinthians always presents some unique challenges when you teach it because there's some things that are very specific to that church and to that culture. And I've shared with you before, to just go through some of these letters, like 1 Corinthians, or any of them, you know, and just, and just automatically try to make everything Paul says and just pull it out and, and just say, okay, this is a template for us, can be difficult. Part of the reason is our culture's not like theirs. Uh, it doesn't mean that that stuff's not important for us. It is. Some of it's absolute stone cold we have to do when Paul writes in, in uh, Romans, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. There, there's no cultural anything about that. When he says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, there's nothing cultural about that. That's stone cold. But when he says things like greet each other with a holy kiss, none of you do that, hopefully. And if you try it on me, don't you dare try that. But there's a principle involved, and sometimes the trick is just understanding the overriding principle. And we come to a passage today that's a little bit difficult. It has to do with lawsuits. And, uh, it, it, and obviously what he writes pertains to us. But we need to kind of understand a little bit how. Uh, remember, they, that church lived in the midst of an unbelievably godless and pagan society. They did have Roman law, and Roman law sought justice not quite like we would think of it, but there was a sense of trying to do right. <sighs> Underprivileged people could be protected. So it's a little more difficult, but, you know, obviously the wealthier you were, <laughs> the easier it was to, to get justice. But the problem was that there, it was a pagan background. And this young, struggling church evidently had people going and suing one another. And the idea of Christians within a, a church, or Christians suing one another, period, is distasteful. Now, let me say this. Now, we live in a different kind of culture a little bit. For one, our judicial system is based on principles and a worldview that comes from Christianity. So there is a little more confidence. You should have more confidence. I understand from a political standpoint, some of you may not, but you should have more confidence that in our judicial system, justice is sought absolute. And justice, that is in conformity to Christian values. So understand that. Sometimes you, you don't really have a choice. I mean, if you get sued, you, you need to go to court, because if you don't, they may take everything you have, and while that may sound noble, then it's, it's not smart sometimes. You know, I, 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 when I was at Park Hills Baptist, we got sued, and, you know, the really cool thing about when we got sued, it was one of our church members sued us in a situation, is our insurance company took over, and you know what insurance companies do when they take over? Whatever they want. <laughs> yeah, they pay for it. And it's like, hey, pay for it. You can do whatever you want. You can hire whoever you want. We're just like, whatever, you know. And uh, so I'm just saying, you know, I, I understand these things. The real overarching issue for us is why do believers have disagreements that get to the point where they feel they need to sue each other? That's the struggle. Now, some, I, mean, I, I understand in life things happen that can be car wrecks, and I'm, I got all that, and I understand that, and that, I'm, and that takes the world of its own. We're not necessarily talking about that. And sometimes, like I said, you may get sued. I know plenty of Christians get sued. What do I do? They say, I say, go get an attorney. And when you get an attorney, you do what they tell you. You're paying for their advice. Don't try to, you know, just go. To, sometimes you got to take care of those things. I get it. So we come here understanding the overarching issue is the behavior of the believers. That's what's really at stake. So Paul says, does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to a law, go to a law before the unrighteous 
uh, and not before the saints. So he says, he's asked this question. He's stunned. You, you, you got a case against your neighbor. And he's talking about someone within the faith. You, you got a dispute. You, how, how dare you? you? You go to the unrighteous and not before the saints. So the, I, the word unrighteous means you go not simply to people who are lost. You're going to go and to pagans. And two believers are going to walk before pagans and let pagans decide what should happen between the two of them as opposed to saints. And the word saints it is, comes from the word we just our term holy in a little bit. And the last verse we're going to look at, he's going to talk about uh, those who've been sanctified. It's also from the word holy. We, we are saints in the sense that we are set apart. Set apart not from something, but to someone to God. Holiness is the eye being set apart. God is ultimately the holy one, but we are, we're set apart to God. So we're all saints. And I know, there's, there's, you know, from Catholicism, there's St. Paul and Peter and all that, and, and occasionally I'll even say St. So-and-so for whatever reason. I don't, I don't get bent out of shape if you call Peter or Paul uh, saints because they are saints, just like you and I are saints. But, you know, that's not what we mean, but I got it. And so he says, you, you go before the unrighteous, then he says this, do you not know that the holy ones, the saints, will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law course? Now, what we tend to get focused on, and I understand, is, well, how are we going to judge the world as Christians? You know, there are references to that. Uh, some of it goes back to the Old Testament. There are some references in the New Testament of Jesus. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't search too hard to try specific things. Obviously, there's a general knowledge. And then again, let me just say this. The focus of this isn't whether or not we're going to judge the world or whether or not we're going to judge the angels, which is mentioned later on. It's whether or not we're competent enough as believers to reconcile with one another and work through our situations. That's the real issue. Can't you guys find a way to resolve this dispute that you have? How long do you let a dispute between you and another Christian or a member of the church go on before you seek in a Christ-like way to resolve it? You let it go a day, a week, a month? I don't know. I have had those. I got them. I, pastor has those more probably than you realize. And so how long? Do I go? How do I decide to dis resolve it? You know what I don't do is I don't want to get the opinion of lost people to tell me how to resolve a dispute between someone's believer. Now, I know he's talking here more along the lines of legal disputes, and I get that. Still, believers ought to have a way, if both are following Christ, to work through to a solution. Sometimes it may even involve bringing in other believers to help. And that's kind of what the point that Paul is saying. Because here's why. If you take your dirty laundry out into the world, does it not soil the name of Christ into the world? To see believers feuding? Do, why, why would a pagan want to become a believer if believers lack love for one another? Remember, uh, in, I think it was in 2020, when I was uh, preaching through uh, the 13th chapter of John, when Jesus said, a new command I give to you, that you love one another. 
And this is how the world will know you're my disciples. If you love one another. Well, wouldn't love kind of preclude you from airing your dirty laundry in front of the whole world to see? Do you not know? He says, we'll judge the angels. How much more matters of this life? Now, I'm sure you're all interested. Where does it say we'll judge the angels? Well, you go search that for yourself. There are references that are made. I don't really want to go into that because that's not the important thing. And I've got no clue. So, so verse 4, if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Now, that phrase, no account, you ever call someone no account? Like, like your son-in-law, he's no account, something like that, or... You got a cousin who's no account because he comes from that branch of the family. And if you don't have that branch of the family, it's probably because you're that branch <laughs> of the family. You're the, you're the no account. I, 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 we got some of my family. My family's got some. I know, gosh, Debbie's family. She's working in Awana. She'll never hear this. My goodness, she's got no account people left and right. <laughs> Here, the, the, the idea of no account really has the idea of they have no place. Or, you know, when you say someone's no account, you mean they're no good. That's not what Paul's saying. What, what he's saying is they have no standing in the church. They're, they're, they have no place in the church. They're not a part of the church. There's no accounting, accountability. So they deal with things in life. And, and he's, not, he's not saying that the courts aren't important. And he's not saying that the courts are bad or corrupt. He's not saying that. He's not even saying that you may be dragged to court by an unbeliever and, and, and you may have to do something there. He, he's not even arguing that. He's talking about the problem within the church. Remember, this church has so much dissension, so much feuding, so much breaking apart. They have fractured so much they're going to court with one another. And he's saying this, this is how bad it's become. You can't reconcile with one another. Why can't you do that? Verse 5, I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between the brother. But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, remember we started off this whole study back in uh, September talking about wisdom, how they were so enamored with wisdom. And so here, Paul says, is there not one person who was wise? Y'all are so hung up on being wise. You, you brag about why. Does, do not any of you have the discernment to settle this dispute within a, within a church, within the Christian community? There ought to be ways to resolve differences. Surely there's someone wise and discerning that can help you through it. Even in, in Christian life, I think as a Southern Baptist in my 40 years of ministry, how many, how many battles we've had in Baptist life about so many things, and it, it always gets drawn out in the paper and, you know, in the media. They don't ever understand how Baptist life works. They don't, they don't understand that what they argue about among people sitting on committees has no impact on us. They don't tell us what to do. Y'all know that, right? It's Baptist. No, no, you know, who tells y'all what to do? You tell us what to do with the Holy Spirit's guidance. There's no, there's no organizational, you know, ecclesiology that oversees us. That's kind of cool, actually. That's kind of like that. 
because otherwise I'd be rebelling all the time. They'd kick me out, you know, and I'd have to go somewhere that didn't do that. So I just, my bad, it's easier to start that way. But we have those ugly disputes, and we have, we have meetings, the convention, you know, and they'll vote on something. And we voted so-and-so to so-and-so, and, and this side won and this side lost. And whenever it gets to somebody won and somebody lost, that's problematic. Now, I understand why that happens, and, and I get it, and, I, and I'm not, down, you know, not being down on being Baptist. I'm just saying that really shouldn't happen in a church. And it ought not to happen between believers. And if you find yourself at odds with someone, go fix it. I seem to remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus saying, if you're going to go to court with someone, you better get it fixed fast. Because if you end up going to court and you're going to lose, it's going to be bad. Now, that's a rough paraphrase, very rough. But, but from the outset of our faith, there is to be something different about us. Now, he's going to go on these next few verses to explain why that is so and why we ought to have that different life. And then he's, in doing it, it, Paul, as only Paul can do, looks like he's going to chase into another subject matter that's not related, but it is related. Paul has this fascinating way of writing to what we might call chase rabbits, but he's really not chasing them. He's just enlarging the scope of his net in order to, to prove a, a more important point that he has going on. And in doing so, brings out one a great doctrinal statement in this book. He says this in verse 7. Actually, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You, don't, you, do not, you do this even to your brethren. In that same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in that same chapter in Matthew said, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, just turn him to the left cheek. If someone insults you, just take the insult. Isn't it better to be wrong, wronged than to be wrong? Isn't it better to deal with the insults? Deal with whatever's occurred than to always have to be right. Have you ever met someone who always has to be right, always has to get an upper hand? Nobody likes them. And in the church, that's devastating. And nobody likes them in the church either, especially the pastor. He says, you've already lost, you know, uh, <laughs> I, you know in all the years that I played, uh, played ball uh, in high school and college, you know, before, uh, especially in high school, I was on really, really good teams. In college, I wasn't. But sometimes you go into a game, and, and you know the outcome is done. You know you're going to win. You just know it's going to happen. Uh, and, and, and if, you're on the, if you know you're going in, you're going to get beat. That's so frustrating. I officiated football for 20-something years. And uh, many times, you know, I'd go uh, to a game, and you knew it was a mismatch. And the coach who was about to get killed looked at me and said, we don't stand a chance. And I don't want to get my players hurt. Get this thing over with as fast as you can. They were already done. And the thing about it is, if you are going to have fights and quarrels, you've already lost. You've, you've already been defeated. I want you to think about this. You realize that 
The great enemy of God, Satan, has already lost. He lost the minute he rebelled. Every person who opposes Christ is lost. They've already been defeated. They, 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 they don't have a chance of winning. We put ourselves in that same group of people. We have already been defeated as followers of Christ. Why do you want to be there? Here's the other thing. When, when you are having a dispute with somebody, when I point, I wasn't pointing at y'all. I wasn't pointing at you. But when you have a dispute with somebody, you're miserable, aren't you? I am. I mean, I spend time figuring out, okay, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to get this done. I'm going to tell them that. I'm going to work this way. I mean, you, and you know what ends up happening? Now, I'm going to sound like a prosperity gospel preacher. I'm not. But they have power over your life. You know that, don't you? Why would you give people... The Holy Spirit has power in your life, and you relinquish that so that somebody you have a dispute with has that power over your life. Why? He says you've already been defeated, and you feel defeated, feel miserable. He says you think you're wronged, but you're the ones doing the wronging. You're the one doing the defrauding. You're in the wrong. Even if you think you're in the right, he says, you're in the wrong. So it's better to be insulted and defrauded. Now, I understand. Now, let me put here. <laughs> There's a difference what we're talking about. And, and if something happens and, and, and you're being sued by somebody and they're suing you, somebody you know, gets hurt at your home and they decide to sue you or there's a car wreck and they're coming after you for everything you've got. There's a difference in our culture. So understand that. Obviously, you need to defend yourself. I, I, I've been there. So I'm, I'm not, there's nothing unscriptural about defending yourself. Letting your insurance company do it's even better. But there's nothing wrong about doing that. And, and you know, when, when Park Hills Baptist was sued, and, you know, and, and we went through uh, all sorts of things in court, and we went through depositions and all sorts of things, you know, it, it was a tough time. But, but you still, you have to protect things. You know, we, we have insurance to protect the church. And all, so we understand the world we live in. So don't, don't confuse that. Don't take this into that world. We're talking about you having personal animosity towards someone that in that day took it to a court, which you still can to this day too. So make some distinction. And even if you are drug into that type of world, try not to be bitter and hateful. Try to be loving and, and try to be kind and let the person who is mean-spirited and devious and untrustworthy be the attorney you hired because that's what they get paid to do. <laughs> All I said, my attorney represents my best interest, not my character. So I have met Christian attorneys. Never hired, no. Uh, I have, I have. There's some fine, outstanding Christian attorneys who've not sold their soul. I, I, truthfully, if I hadn't have been a Baptist pastor, I probably would have been an attorney. A good one, too. Now, verse 9 says this. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Because I, we know that, right? Because what's happening is you're aligning yourself with the unrighteous. And then he describes him. This is tough. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, inherit the kingdom simply means to be a part of the kingdom. You're not, you're not part of it. He describes people 
whose lifestyle is given over to this. Now, he, in just a minute, he's going to say, you were, some, you, you were like that at one time. He's not saying people who've done these things can't inherit. All of us are sinners. All of us have probably at some point in our life done something that if you look at the different books that Paul wrote when he lists all the different sins, probably fall into there somewhere. He's talking about people whose lifestyle is designed that way. So let me just go through it. And, and, and whenever you get lists, I don't like to go through lists too closely and try to, to, to you know, call it out and, and get real specific as this or that, or just some of that. Lists tend to be comprehensive more than exhaustive. Just remember that. Some things will be left out. Say, well, Paul, he, Paul left that out. That's good. No, it, this is a comprehensive. You, it's a, you get the picture kind of list. Similar one is found over in chapter 5 when he talks, uh, it's in Galatians. Galatians 5 when he talks the fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> I was studying Galatians for the sermon today. And when you, do, when you do Paul in Galatians and Paul in Corinthians and you study them both, sometimes your mind gets confused. So he says, do not be deceived. Fornicators, and the word fornicator is the fundamental word for all sexual sin. It comes from that word pornia. Pornia, we get a word pornography. Uh, comes from that. Tim, are you in the Greek? I got the right word, right? Yeah, I got the right By Basic word, I got you. He's reading the Greek. He's the only, he's the only one that can fact check me. So I, make, I, I, I do that because I was in Galatians earlier doing the same thing. And like, my ankles, you know. So, um, you know, that, that term that we get pornography from uh, is, can mean sometimes, it's a very general term. It can mean just evil and wickedness, but normally it has sexual connotation. Idolaters, you know, are, are people, obviously, who get over to paganism, which involves sexual sin. Remember, paganism always involves sexual sin. Back then, they were adulterers. Um, they go on to talk about uh, uh, f- effeminate and homosexuals. Th- that those mean really, they're, they're talking about people in the same lifestyle, one passive, one aggressive, don't want to get beyond that. Thieves, um, co- people who covet, drunkards, people who get involved in wild partings and a lifestyle, people who swindle. None of these inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, he, he's describing people who live a life that reflect paganism. Paganism. That's what he's. So, why would we want to live a life that reflects paganism? And then he comes, this verse 11, in the midst of all of this, this, this gem of a verse can get lost. He says, Such were some of you. Some of you were that way. And then notice what he says. This is beautiful. But you were uh, washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Let me just talk about those words. To be washed. Some, some think it references to baptism. Probably does. It probably references just to being cleansed of sin. Uh, every time the word water or washing is mentioned, it doesn't have to do with baptism. We, we were cleansed when we came to Christ. Our lives were messed up in sin. That, that list described many of them, may describe some of you uh, in your life, may still touch on some things with you in your life even now. There are other words that could have described your life. It's because it's not listed in there. It's probably somewhere. And if you don't think you can find it, come see me. I'll help you find it. <laughs> We've been cleansed from all that. It's done away with. It's a beautiful thing. No, I've been forgiven. I know I've done some things in my life I shouldn't have done. Some pretty bad things sometimes. 
to know that God has pushed that aside and washed that away in Christ. Not only that, he says, I've been, this beautiful word, sanctified. We, we, don't, we don't use a lot of the five words anymore, sanctified, justified, uh, homicide, all those five words. But um, it's an important term. In connecting to another, a culture we have in now, sometimes we don't use that. We'll use other terms that mean the same thing. It means to be made holy or to be made set apart. So we've, we have been cleansed, and we are set apart, and we are sanctified. By the way, we're sanctified every day of our life. We're in the process of being set apart every day for God. Yes, we are set apart from the world, but that's not the emphasis. It's we're set apart to God, to live our lives to honor God. But not only that, he says, and you were justified. That's such an important word for Paul. It's a legal term. It's the same word basically as righteousness, justification, righteousness, that, same word. And it means to be declared right. Not so much made right, declared right. We're sinners, and we don't deserve salvation. But in Christ, we are declared right by God. You are declared free and righteous. We're cleansed, set apart as holy, and made righteous, declared righteous for God. That's us. And we live in a world, you know, it's, it's amazing to me, growing up, as a follower of Christ all my life, justification is just a, some, an important part of our faith and of our theology. But how many within Christianity try to downplay or to nullify the effects of justification? It's an amazing thing. That somehow that justification doesn't mean what Paul says it means. At the heart of justification is this. Remember, uh, was it last Sunday or Sunday before last? I, talk, I think it was last night, I talked about Christ being the sacrifice of our sins, his substitutionary death. Christ substituted himself for us so that I can be declared right in the eyes of God. If Christ is not my substitute, I can't be declared right because no one took my sin. And if no one took my sin, I'm in trouble. Because I can't make it right. Sunday, I'm going to preach about the, one of my favorite, the designer Jesus. You know, it's, it's a message I'm looking forward to preaching. How we in our culture want to design our own Jesus. We want to take and make our own gospel. Really, what we want to do is just good old-fashioned save ourselves. That's all it is. And when you start tampering, with how God defines salvation and he, how he made it happen, you've got nothing left. The fundamental, to me, the fundamental component of my salvation is God declaring that I'm right. And one, this is a beautiful thing. Once he's declared I'm right, I'm never not right ever again. One of the beauty, beauties of our faith that so many people miss is the security of our salvation. Once in a court of law, I was accused of a crime when the judge drops the gavel and says, you're not guilty. I can never 
be found guilty of that crime, even if I did it ever again. Now, I realize in our current court system, they might find a way around that, but in theory, <laughs> never. I'm always not guilty of that crime. It's not that I'm not guilty of my sin. I am guilty. I know, but Christ paid the price. So I have been declared right by God. And even if you go to prison and you serve your time, once you're through, you're right. They can't put you back in jail for that same crime. Some of you, some of you know what I'm talking about, right? No, I'm just kidding. Um, if you pay the crime, fine, or if you do the time, it's done. They can't come back. Y'all are discussing your time in jail or what? Salboxy. Uh, I'm just kidding. Once you've done that, you can't go back. And once you've been justified, you never lose that, ever, no matter what. So here's the thing. If you've been cleansed and sanctified and justified, why do you need to have a dispute with another follower of Christ who's been cleansed and sanctified and justified? Shouldn't y'all find some way to get along? And if you can't get along, just sit on opposite sides of the worship center. We're three.